This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this episode, we're going to take a look back at a couple of our series that we put out in the podcast while Amanda and I have been away. It's been a while since we've been together in North Quad Studios. We're going to look back on the excellent series of talks that Amanda and her fellow academic brethren did on digital media and digital media industries, and we're going to look back at my two interviews with theater executives in the New York City area. But we're going to look at the talks first. So, Amanda, one of the things I found interesting um, in the talks was kind of how the industries were affected on different timelines. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? All right, so I'm just at the start of, of trying to think through some of these questions, having looked at television as long as I have, and on some level I feel like I've figured a few things out. It just seems to me that there have to be similar stories in other media. And it's odd, the way that uh, the academic field is organized, depending on what you study, you don't necessarily run across scholars who study other media industries. So in terms of the talks, John Thompson and Lee Marshall are British sociologists. I'd never met them. I, the chances of me ever seeing them at a conference were pretty slim. And so I had to sort of invent this event to bring us all together to have this conversation. Because as I was finishing up the project on television, and thinking about the way that television series and their distribution and their consumption were really different, I kept thinking about books and the way in which watching a television series was becoming more and more like reading a book. Or the uh, infamous TV show is movie argument. Oh, that, well, yes, uh... there's that too. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's so obvious and yet it's so under-investigated. Now, digitization has been affecting media industries now for 20 years, um, very substantially, the print industry and the music recording industry, and, and arguably the book publishing industry is right there too. And we really don't have any kind of comprehensive sense of what has happened, right? There's always trade press articles that are in the moment. And I guess the thing that I found studying the television side of those 20 years was how often the trade press of the moment would hype this big thing and then, you know, 10 years later, you figure out, nope, that wasn't important at all. Well, that might also have to do with the life cycle of technology on its own. 10 years is decades in a kind of a technology life. So, like, a piece of technology that's 10 years old could very well be obsolete by the time it's done. Like, the iPod. That's not that old. I think it was, what, 2001 when it was introduced? Correct. And, you know, we're sitting here 16 years later, and even for a few years iPods are not really Apple's bread and butter anymore. Well, certainly not. I guess I think the thing that's hard for us is this notion of sort of histories of the very near past, or <laughs> I mean, really, they're histories of the present, right? And, and looking at technological change with that kind of lens instead of that prognosticating forward-looking angle. But I've gotten off topic, but yes. <laughs> so I think that one of the things that was interesting to me was to put in conversation you know, the scholars who had been looking at the same kind of changes that I was seeing in television, but in other media, mm -hmm. um, particularly those media that were affected earlier. And so like books or especially music. Yeah. So certainly recorded music, I think you can see having its crisis point around 99, 2000. Mm -hmm. It's too early to really know, but that moment might actually have its parallel in television just about now. So really there's a pretty big lag in terms of, of that transition. 
movies, I think, is much more on the same uh, timeline as as television. Although I'd, I'd even argue it, we haven't really seen kind of the same element of TV and movies yet, like in terms of I guess accessibility of movies that in the first window in the home and digitally. I mean. I would say it just hasn't happened quite yet. Like, well, we're on the cusp of something, I think. Perhaps. I think, and actually, you know, per many of the conversations we've had, and, and we may talk about it more here, is I think actually that cusp may be this erosion of the meaningful distinction between of television and film as mm-hmm. the primary categories in which we separate audiovisual media. And so I think, anyway, the point of the conversation is to take a look at what has happened in and let's say recorded music and it is it's a steady change and mm-hmm. i think the the way is sort of in the moment of change we're constantly assuming it's going to be one thing or the other um that there's everything is zero sum change in other words mm-hmm. well if we take away this many or if we add this many of this we have to take away this if the same add, number back if we add this amount of streaming we have to take away this amount of album sales right and so in in trying to Now, not necessarily prognosticate what's coming in television, but to sort of understand where we are in the process of a change, I think it's helpful to look at something like the recording industry, where you had these very different moments. First, we thought, you know, it's all over with illegal streaming. Um, Then you have the rise of the download. Okay, Mm -hmm. here, this is going to be a thing. And, you know, you blinked, and all of a sudden, we're into yet a new stage, which is these uh, subscriber-funded or in some or advertiser-funded uh, streaming services. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea that the media businesses have evolved steadily as they've worked out both what digital technologies can do, and I think what's crucial here is it's really this moment in which consumers are having an opportunity to sort of say, we want a different experience and to to force, in some cases, business models onto the industry that take into account the way that people actually want to use media instead of being forced by media industries to only have access to media in certain ways and being forced to use it in certain ways. So let's transition a little bit to another question. How has the digital space kind of as a whole, you know, let's put in quotes, the digital space, made discoverability of these products easier. I think that's a natural transition there. Right. Well, I think it's really that there are these issues that have developed as a result of digital distribution. And one of the things that came up in all of the talks uh, is really the stunning increase in product available. And to talk about these in in very industry terms, but there are, you know, it's an exponential growth in the number of books available and in the amount of music available. Um, We call it peak TV when we're fancy, Mm -hmm. but, you know, if you can stretch out to YouTube videos and even film, how much, how many films are made and not even distributed through formal uh, avenues. We talked about that a little bit with Russ Collins. And so one of the things that you know, sort of in an analog era, media were much more based on scarcity. They're, they're, you simply didn't have access to those other things. And so one common issue that all of these industries are facing is this question of discoverability. How do, how do you even put uh, a movie, a song, a book in front of a 
audience member, consumer, who probably actually even wants to watch, read, listen to it, um, but how do you break through all that exists around? Mm -hmm. And really even, I mean, this is the complicated story, right? So early in this cycle, there was sort of the expectation the amateurs were going to come in and take over. Okay, so we went, you know, the pendulum swung all the way to the other side, the industry will die, amateurs will take over. Now, where are we now? Well, the, the pendulum has come back. Mm -hmm. It didn't come all the way back. It's As, not, especially in books. Yeah, it's not that the industry has in any way died, but amateurs now exist, or semi-professionals. I think we're all still really struggling with what is the language to talk about um, this very legitimate and industrial uh, part of Maybe that industries. might fall under, quote, independent. Oh, to a no, no, let's not no. go there. That is a word with so much baggage. Um, in many ways. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Step back. We're going with semi-professional okay. today, okay? Uh, but, and, then, and that, too, is not a, a perfect term. It's not that they've taken over, but they are a part of the industry. Mm -hmm. And that increased uh, content that, that uh, those sources are providing it's hard to you know, break through all of that new clutter as I well. I mean, haven't we phrased this before as kind of the gatekeepers being broken down to a certain extent? Well, and I think that's what's so fascinating, is that I think in an analog era, you know, the expectation was, well, if we just you know, can get around the gatekeepers, then artists will be able to create their messages and get them out. <laughs> well, it turns out that, yes, uh, now the artists can get their messages out, but no one can find them. So it's really it's sort of this tree falling in the forest story. There was a great Alan Seppenwall piece uh, this week as we're recording this about the inability to give TV shows adequate amounts of time anymore. You know, there's the old line, oh, give it a season, give it six episodes and you'll be fine. But do, with the sheer amount of TV right now, even though we're in kind of a dead spot in the season, you know, in, in kind of the summer at this point, there's still a lot of TV to watch. And do we have the time to give something, you know, the six episodes, the eight episodes, the season that we used to give it? Well, and that, that, too, really just speaks to these fundamental ways that television has changed, right? From an era of scarcity where, yes, there used to be other TV on, but you also couldn't access it when you wanted. So mm -hmm. you were more likely to you know, stick with that schedule, take what, they, take what you were given in the prescribed moment. <laughs> um, but now viewers do have these options and, and you know, in some cases, you know, feel this pressure to work their way through all these other shows that they've heard mm -hmm. great things about. And, you know, I think, again, to go back to thinking about media outside of their given context, you know, how long do you stick with a book? You know, yeah. if, if it doesn't attract you in the first chapter, do you put it down? Or if you're standing in the bookstore, what do you do? Do you, oh, it's a pretty cover. You look at it, you flip through it. You know, television, because of the way that it was delivered, didn't necessarily have to wrestle with attracting consumers in mm -hmm. that same way. Um, and so, you know, all of these changes in how we're consuming it will ripple back into how it is made, right? Mm -hmm. As different producers figure out, oh, I've got to grab them, you know, in the first minute or I will not have them. Or in the first, there is no more like padded pilot episode, mm -hmm. but you've got to suck them into the story within those first minutes or you're done. Or even the first song in an album, like probably with discoverability, one of the industries that's been affected the most is the music industry. Because now let's say you subscribe to Spotify and you've heard great things about, for example, the excellent new Lord album. You can just go and press play on that album, you know? You d there's no legwork in terms of going to iTunes or going 
it back in the day going to Napster and having to find it. You just search melodrama and it's there for you to listen to. And I think the other thing, you know, going to, to Sappenwall's point, is I think there is this interesting another shift, actually, in the role of the critic, right? Mm-hmm. Because maybe it is worth five episodes to, to a certain television critic, and maybe then the show, which matches their taste in a certain way, becomes worth it. Mm-hmm. But I think given the variety of television shows out there that are kind of all, you know, many are in the 80, 90 to 100 percent, like they're just good quality shows. Well, whether something is an 80 or 100, it isn't um, an objective state, right? It has to do with what kind of storytelling you like. And so for some people, maybe it was that first episode, man, that was great from the start, whereas for other people, it took a few episodes to get in, and when there's so many other things to watch, you just move on instead of continuing. One of the shows he mentioned with it was Parks and Recreation, which famously, you know, didn't have a great first season. Um, It's six-episode first season, isn't that good? And then it comes back in season two with a vengeance and then becomes, you know, a Hall of Famer, one of my favorite comedies ever made. But would I give it that second... Would I have come back at that second season after that pilot now? I don't really know. There's so much great TV, and I'm behind on all of it. Now, there used to be such... There used to be so few shows that, let's say, jumped mm-hmm. into that so 80% like, category. back when The Sopranos was on the air, it was The Sopranos, The Wire, Deadwood. Absolutely. And, the Shield. And now, you know, like, I have tried Fargo twice. I am not saying Fargo is not a good show. Fargo is not a show for me, <laughs> right? And so it just... It didn't used to be that way. Uh, there mm-hmm. used to be pretty much clear consensus among the critics about, you know... There were so few good shows, and they were they were all held it's up. It's amazing how many shows get boats now on something like the Uproxx Critics Poll, where like you can see like 40 shows placing in people's top tens. So I guess the point you're getting at is there used to be much more cons- consensus over what, what like those 10 shows would be. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit. We've talked a lot about kind of how different industries have worked, but these industries have kind of embraced digitization in different ways but with similar and consistent themes. Now, we've danced around these ideas a little bit, but let's make it concrete. Well, I think one thing that we can see that has happened in multiple media industries is that there's been a change in the revenue model, but it hasn't always been the same change, right? And so in the case of something like television, where it was ad-supported and you... Television wasn't ever really transacted. It was on at a certain time. You watched. Uh, What has happened since then? Well, uh, there's been a significant growth in the use of a subscription model to fund television. That's what we have with Netflix. It's what we've had for a long time, but Mm -hmm. certainly with more attention lately with HBO. Television and what can be television has been affected by this shift in how it is paid for. Mm Mm-hmm. Like Netflix coming in and getting 94 Emmy nominations. Very good, yes. Uh, A similar thing has happened in recorded music, but not exactly the same thing. So recorded music used to be something that was transacted. You paid for it, and then Mm -hmm. you owned it. Um, First with the physical copy, then a few years into digitization with the download, and now it's it also has shifted into a subscription model, a service Mm -hmm. um, that provides you with access to content. And so, you know, so in some ways we can look at that change in television and recorded music as being something that looks quite similar. They've kind of ended up in the same point. But yet it's really different for the industry because where they started was so different. And Mm so this notion of... Instead of assuming the way that it used to be was the way it's supposed to be and the way it's normal, 
to, to, to let that go and to just sort of make it strange yeah. um, and, and to think, oh, you know, like there was nothing normal about owning music, you know, and so we shouldn't get hung up on trying to take that old way and bring it back. This is just how it works now. And, you know, how do we how do we make it better? Um, at least from an industrial perspective. So I think that's a, a good example of the way in which digitization has brought similar change that works differently, looks differently. And again, the advantage or the, the value of starting to put different industries in conversation um, to, tr to try to better understand really what has happened. Well, let's get into a little bit more of that idea of what it means to make it strange. I think we, we've seen this again and again, and another place in television, you know, as we shifted out of the mass era into an era of narrow casting, you know, it, it, we often have this assumption that it's, it's the death, it's the end. No, it's just something different. And it's a change, it's a shift, you know? Radio hasn't died yet, so what makes you think broadcast TV is going to die? Exactly. And so it's understanding from an industrial perspective, you know, you put certain technological limitations and affordances, you know, on into a technology. It can do certain things. It can't do other things. You set up a certain kind of funding system. All of that leads it to do a certain thing. And once you start wiggling any of those norms, then the output starts changing. And it's not that you know television used to be a certain way, and that's the way television actually is. Te broadcast television, certain things are possible. Certain norms developed as a result of what was possible. Uh, and so we're, we're seeing that now uh, across media industries. And, and I think what the, the, the discourse, the way of talking about it that's not helpful is this constant frame of death of uh, destruction, um, but to just... Theatrical sort of <laughs> exhibition will die when the screening room comes in. Exactly. Um, but instead to step back and think, okay, this is now possible. How does it change things? And, mm -hmm. and to not look at it from an evaluative standpoint, it's good or bad, you know, in, oh, in, in, it, in, it could, in really... in theory, be bad. Like, argue, you could make the argument that streaming has hurt broadcast networks. Will it kill them? No. I but think, has it probably eroded their ratings maybe faster than they already might have? Yeah, I but, think so. Sure, but so that's for the broadcast industry. But has it made television better uh, as a yeah. result, right? And so I think, <laughs> I think I guess what I'm getting at is that the good, the bad question, that's like the least interesting one. Mm -hmm. um, and so in, and instead of, I think it then also leads us to uh, focus on the wrong thing, and so because we're th kind of thinking about the normal and kind of thinking about everything new in the context of what's normal, instead of kind of breaking out a little bit, right? And and thinking about new possibilities, and and I think you know any industry that's doing well is afraid of change, and you know let's say let's look back at the uh, the film industry that was terrified by. Uh, video cassette distribution. Mm -hmm. This was going to be, again, a bad thing, a death thing. It turns out to be exactly the opposite. A big revenue stream for right. them. And so, you know, I think what time has, has offered in terms of lessons is that technology is very rarely restrained, um, especially once it gets out of labs and development and actually into the hands of people. And once it's in, which is the only time, you well, know, once like it, we'd be once talking Once it kind of gets past the early adopters and kind of hits... I, What's the term? There's a term for kind of when it hits the mainstream. There's a book, Crossing the Chasm. Mm -hmm. And, like, once it crosses that chasm between, like, the early adopters and the mainstream, 
it, it's gone. Like, there's right. no pulling There's no it bringing back. it back. And so instead of you know, continuing to um, mourn that previous era before this technology existed, um, you know, Instead of asking what is lost, also asking, well, what new possibilities are there? So let's kind of, let's make one last transition within this topic and kind of talk about going back to the basics with um, media scholar Henry Jenkins, who never classified television or film as media, but he talked about it in slightly a different way. So what, what are you getting at with this idea here? Oh, so I've been wrestling with with Jenkins for a good year now um, and and giving a variety of talks as I work my way through this, right? Um, And so overwhelmingly when we're talking about digital, the digital transition in any media, sort of technology gets pushed to the forefront in a way that's not helpful. Um, So when I say go back to basics, it's looking at the words of Jenkins, um, technology scholars such as Lisa Gittleman, um, and in terms of television studies, Lynn Spiegel does a good job summarizing this, um, as, you know, television isn't just a technology, but it's also the industrial formations, government regulations, and practices of looking. So just because the technology is changing, that doesn't mean those other things have changed. And so in looking at television, as I've sort of been tracking those other areas to a degree, And Jenkins is helpful in that he makes a distinction between media and distribution systems. And he notes that media, they don't die, they don't go away, but distribution systems change. And I think that's a really helpful way of understanding what's been happening. So for Jenkins, where where Jenkins and I weren't necessarily in sync until recently, um, was that he reserves the distinction of media, what is a medium, um, as the written word, sound, or audiovisual images. So in his mind, television isn't a medium. It's it's a purveyor of audiovisual images, let's say. Um, and, and I was sort of feeling like, you know... But there's a difference between television and film, and they're both audiovisual messaging systems. And so I think it is helpful to think of and them as media. There's a difference between them and theater, which is an audiovisual yes. system of a different sort. With less techno- it's not technologically distributed, though. No. So yeah. So, but the, I mean, this is the point. Or only of, in very rare cases is it technologically distributed, like I, movie theater screenings of theater. I know, and at that point, I'd say, is that really theater? But we can save that for another day. <laughs> But anyway, so I've been I've been talking about the uh, evolution of my thinking as the full Jenkins, right? Because in some of the conversations that we've been having throughout this uh, the last you know, few months about how television and film are growing closer together, and that's not just this function of it's ninety minutes long or something like that. Is it television or is it film? But really, the way in which Industrial practices are becoming more common, um, and practices of looking, too, are becoming blurrier. And so I guess the thought, and this is still a really preliminary thought that I'm kicking around uh, in my head, is it used to be that television and film were helpful ways of subcategorizing audiovisual messages. But maybe those aren't the best way anymore. Um, one of the alternative distinctions I've been thinking about is, well, maybe domestic and extra domestic, you know, so um, does that actually help us understand the practices of looking better? I mean, it, it becomes tricky when we're watching the same things, let's say, out of the home as we are in the home. And that's where, again, where I think we're, and to your point, on the cusp of something with the film industry, mm-hmm. right? And so the film industry and the notion of windowing, you've always, you've 
you saw it in there. It was available in the theater first, and then it worked its way through these windows. Mm -hmm. As windowing becomes a less viable strategy because of the way uh, digital files can circulate, maybe one of the coming changes that we're seeing for what we've called the film industry is that it's not about windowing. It's about producing certain content for theatrical exhibition and certain content for those other windows. And and that's where, to, to start making the transition into to your interviews um, in the theater industry, it was a really helpful way in the same way that for me thinking about books has been helpful to push my thinking about television. I think actually thinking about what the theater industry knows could be really helpful for thinking about the future of theatrical distribution of film because at their core, they're really struggling with the same problem in terms of that first window, which is in the words of Ira Deutschman and Russ Collins, and I think someone else we talked to this semester, getting butts in seats. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing that uh, Mark Hobie especially got into a lot, the, the problem of getting people actually to the theater. Dig- digitization hasn't really impacted the theater industry in the same way as it's impacted film and TV, but one way that kind of Mark Hobie got at was how people aren't deciding what to do far in advance. They're kind of deciding, you know, maybe, you know, tonight, oh, I want to go see a movie. But for the theater industry, that kind of breaks with the tradition of, you know, buying tickets months in advance and actually going to the theater itself. And we've had this sort of assumption that, like, film going, like, it's it's about the film, mm-hmm. right? Whereas it's, I wonder there if it's that kind of similar thing, like, whether it really is a different thing. It's deciding to go out and be part of something mm-hmm. versus deciding to to stay home and, you know, what are the range of options that I have, you know, to be entertained in that context. But why don't we back up first, and Alex, can you explain uh, the two different interviews that that you have added and and really sort of where the idea for doing these came from? Sure. So uh, the idea with these interviews is um, we've talked a little bit in this podcast about the theater industry as a whole, and you know, it's a very different kind of media industry than a lot of the others that we spent a lot of time delving into. And what I really wanted to do here was go and talk to people who make theater about how they make theater and about how they fund their theater and why they do what they do to a certain extent. So these are two not-profit theaters I talked to. The first one is Mark Hobie of the Paperville Playhouse, which is a regional theater in Milburn, New Jersey, that has gained increasing national prominence over the past uh, decade. And the other one is the Manhattan Theatre Club. Uh, I talked to Barry Grove, the executive producer, and the Manhattan Theatre Club is a not-for-profit, but it's on Broadway. So it's actually in New York, and off-Broadway, they uh, they have uh, three stages and two spaces in New York, which is even different from programming in New Jersey. You know, they're playing at what I guess I would call the main window of theatre in on Broadway, where Paper Mill kind of actually exists in two windows, so to speak. They exist in the pre-Broadway window now, increasingly over the past, uh, I guess, I want to say eight years uh, since Happy Days in 2009. Um, They've kind of existed in the pre-Broadway window or kind of early stages of a show's life. In other words, something might open there and then if it's successful, it could find its way onto Broadway? Exactly. Something like uh, what they did, Newsies was probably their first and most prominent hit that where that happened. And they also exist in kind of the revival 
window or post Broadway. Like they'll put on, they've recently put on productions of West Side Story and Oklahoma, and they've got Annie coming up in their next season. So those are like examples of kind of two different windows that it, they exist in. And one of the things that was really that was striking to me listening to the interviews, and I've sort of expected that there wouldn't be much commonality. Um, and I've been doing all of this work on subscription funding models, and oh my gosh, there's a whole other subscription funding <laughs> model that I hadn't even thought about. And it's one that's existed for a long time. Exactly. And so do you want to talk a little bit about how does subscription work in theater? Yeah, absolutely. Subscription theater is a little different in that um, what these theater companies do is they put on a season of shows. So Paper Mill does five shows a year in their space. Manhattan Theater Club does eight across their three spaces, three of which are on Broadway. And what they then do is they kind of package these shows together and sell them as a package. Like Paper Mill will say, oh, you can go to three, four, five of these shows for a certain price. Manhattan Theater Club, actually, you get more flexibility in terms of how many you can pick and from, you know, their Broadway and off-Broadway pools, you can pick a certain amount. So instead of like a traditional monthly subscription, like we've talked about a lot, it's much more of we're going to package these shows that you that you will go to together and we will sell them to you in advance, usually for a deep discount off the list price. Um, usually, uh, I know Paper Mill mentioned about 30 or 40% off Manhattan Theater Club, I think, is a similar range. And so we can think about why this is advantageous, is mm -hmm. that you know, because this um, you are committing to the subscription probably um, maybe even six months before the season of shows starts, it gives the theater a sense of, okay, we have this guaranteed pot of money mm -hmm. that we know that we're, we have to work with. Now, in some ways, that's not dissimilar from the notion of the way the upfront broadcast advertising commitments Absolutely. work. So the advantage is there that you're not just um, trying to sell out all of those seats each and every night, but you, you're entering your season with at least, you know, knowing, okay, we have X amount of money coming in, mm -hmm. period. Um, so that's helpful. But as you noted, you know, this practice is starting to come into conflict with sort of changing attitudes about theater going um, and just sort of unpredictability. Or just changing lives. attitudes about how you play in your life in general. Certainly. Like, to subscribe to a theater, you could be planning a year in advance that on this date, I will be in this theater. And that's, that practice is starting to erode a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's funny because my own experience with this is actually with the Michigan Theater. They have a, <laughs> a Not Just for Kids play series mm -hmm. that comes through. And, and sure enough, you know, it's in April, they're, you know, asking me to commit to the next season. And you know, I don't know the soccer schedule yet mm -hmm. and things like that. And there, it's not, there's not that much flexibility. There's, you know, one showing on one date of each show. And, mm -hmm. and, and honestly, when I stopped the subscription was was largely because in, in the year before, we'd ended up with, like, conflicts on two of the four dates, and, and, and there was just sort of no way out, and, yeah. like, and it just didn't seem worth it, even though I was getting a discounted ticket rate. Whereas with theater, you know, they're doing eight shows a week of the same show, you know, for, in the, Paper Mill usually does the range of five weeks, Manhattan Theater Club runs are usually a little bit longer, I think they start at about eight or ten weeks from my mem from my memory of what Barry said. So there is that it's a little bit different from that in terms of the amount mm -hmm. of shows you have to go to. But it's an interesting model. I know that there are. I haven't ever looked into them closely, but I know that this is a model that some film 
uh, exhibitors, film theaters have tried, is mm-hmm. that you buy a subscription. And you know, it, it, it's awkward in some ways. It probably doesn't work for the, the multiplex necessarily. But it might work for something like the Michigan. Absolutely. And sort of, or even that there's a specific series that, that you know, that is going to be curated, a maybe very digital era word. If we did want to use the multiplexes, you know, your summer blockbuster series, or maybe you buy tickets in advance to all the Marvel movies or something like sure, that. Sure. Or, you know, the, the films of John Waters were going to be mm-hmm. doing a retrospective. And so I Again, there, the idea for a consumer that you're getting some value out of it, you're, you know, it's an opportunity to go to the theater perhaps at a, at a lower rate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also then, for anyone who is remotely sensitive about having spent the money, it, it adds a little bit of a motivation to get you into the theater. To, oh, yeah, I remember coming out and seeing movies. Oh, this is a really great experience, <laughs> right? And so getting over that bridge between just staying home and, and, theater going publicly. Mm-hmm. One of the things that subscription also does is it helps them kind of create a relationship and cultivate their mm-hmm. audience a little bit because now that they have now they have this group of people who they know will come and mm-hmm. they kind of get to work with them a little bit to kind of find the type of theater that they get to produce and we notice that with Paper Mill. Well and again and I, I saw or I can imagine a parallel here to film right and so I think forever film exhibitors have just assumed, you know, people come for the movie. But what if what if we shift the thinking? What if we make it strange, right? <laughs> what if we what if people go to the movie because they enjoy going to mm-hmm. a movie? Um, and so I think again, it's this notion of shifting from the focus on what is the release that is getting billions of dollars of promotion this re- week just to people knowing that this is an experience that I enjoy. And now part of that, too, is that the theaters then have to make it an experience that people enjoy yeah. and to put the priority there instead of kind of just this, you know, shuffle us in, shuffle us out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you know, I think we can imagine uh, how strategies would be different. And it seems like there is a lot to learn from the theater industry. I, I like the idea of the, the young audience nights yeah. too, right? And so the same thing, you know. Like, Man- like Manhattan Theater Club at every performance has a certain amount of tickets mm-hmm. at $30 if you're under 30. Mm-hmm. And so and if you're, you're having sort of that guarantee of um, if you're going to a social event that you're, it's an opportunity to network with people roughly mm-hmm. your age. And you go, you're going to a theater and it may or may not be filled with a bunch of young families. That's the only time I ever get to the movies, it seems. <laughs> But there's one more thing I kind of want to hit on with um, this theater talk, and it involves Paper Mill, and how they, one of the things you pointed out to me when um, we were talking about the episode before it was released was how they had to completely, how they completely changed Mm -hmm. their programming and completely changed their strategy after nearly closing. A decade ago, Paper Mill Playhouse had very little money in the bank and was like this close to being shut down. Alex's fingers were very close together there. <laughs> it wasn't a great visual for radio or podcast, but nearly shut down. Yeah, and they kind of transitioned from, that was, it was at that point that they actually started kind of embracing the pre-Broadway window a little bit, and now, you know, one of the things that I found most interesting that Markobi said was that now the audience seems more interested in pre-Broadway shows than the revivals that used to drive them. Right, and so part of that was a, a turnover in the um, the theater going audience that they were seeing. Right, and so you know, it was a generation that had been raised experiencing theater a certain way, and then a, a new generation coming in. And so to me, that did seem very much about a, a programming story. Mm-hmm. Like we need a new programming strategy. And they kind of found it with um, 
pre-Broadway with Newsies, this season is one of their most ambitious yet, if not their most ambitious yet. Four out of five are originals. Wow. Um, and pre-Broadway, maybe they've had one prior staging, mm-hmm. but it's four originals and Annie, and some of them have names like The Honeymooners. Mm-hmm. You, you know what The mm-hmm. Honeymooners is, um, but you might not know, say, what The Outsider is. It's a political play. Okay. They're hoping their audience will kind of embrace these new shows, and especially, you know, in a much bigger way than they might have in prior seasons. So what other things do you think uh, different industries can learn from the theater industry? Well, we've talked a little bit about this, but let's kind of bring them together. What We talked about maybe how the film industry could learn from the subscription strategy, but I want to focus a little bit more on cultivating a young audience and how the theater industry with discounted tickets and programs specifically targeting younger theater goers. Manhattan Theater Club especially has um, been doing very well with this. They kind of have the little pot of 30 under 30 ticket buyers, active 30 under 30 ticket buyers, that they tend to actually reach out to via email. Um, They have an email list that they kind of shoot out, oh, we're putting out a new set of 30 under 30 tickets Mm -hmm. for this show. I actually just got one for uh, Prince of Broadway, their next Broadway show a few weeks ago. Actually, I think as this is releasing their current Broadway show. You know, they're kind of working to get that younger audience going to the theater and getting them used to, like, embracing this medium for what it is and actually getting getting their butts in the seats. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that the notion, a lot of times, um, plays have intermissions, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a create, it's an opportunity to really take advantage of the notion of a communal experience. You have a lot of people around, they're milling around, mm-hmm. um, and... Um, and they want to talk about what they just saw, you know? Well, while you were <laughs> off on your walkabout, um, Ira Deutschman was back on campus and was giving a talk, and one of the conversations that came up was... Some people think of going to a film as, you know, an anti, uh, a not very social activity, right? You mm-hmm. sit in a room, you sit next to someone, you can't really talk about it. And someone brought up the fact, like, no, what what's important about theater going is, like, yes, we go and sit in the movie and we don't talk to each other, but then we go to dinner and we have mm-hmm. that conversation. And so, Or, think- in the case of Get Out, you're laughing mm-hmm. along with everybody else, you're <laughs> cheering along with everybody else. Right, but and, and then you go off in your own ways. But yeah. what if the, the theater's recognize that there actually is a desire for human interaction among people, right? And it's Mm -hmm. not just that they want to go leave this theater and get back on their phones, but what if there were social spaces that were included as part of theaters and that Mm -hmm. you could then, you know, have a drink or, you know, the equivalent of an intermission, you know? It's been a long time since I've been a single person. Um, But there are challenges to meeting people in places like bars and clubs. But, you know, what about the the idea of of movies as a place to meet people you've never met before? Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of go and then talk about the movie. You've already got something to talk about. And if you were there to see it in the first place, maybe you have something in common. So I think it just sort of getting out of these ruts. I think Amanda wants uh, to do, like, a uh, speed dating movie theater edition. Is that what... (laughs) No, no, not necessarily. Just think about theater going differently, right? Mm -hmm. What if the focus of all of our practices around movie going at the theater weren't about seeing a certain film? Mm -hmm. What if it was actually about an experience you know, why do you go? You go for an experience. And so it... And you go to see the movie, but that might be it. secondary. Right. Like, you might go to... Like, let's say you're going to a 30 Under 30 show. You might go to see the, their excellent production of The Little Foxes, 
but you're also going to meet other people in your in your age range. Right. And so I think when when I was talking about it, he was talking about the making of film an event, right? Because mm-hmm. that also is what drives people into being at the theater at a certain time. So His whether plan it, of, uh, it's a director talking after the show or there's going to be, you know, in a town like this, got smart people all over the place <laughs> talking about film. You know, in, in Ann Arbor, there's always a place you can go and talk about a movie. Exactly. So again, just changing our notion of what these practices mean. I, that wraps up our our wrap-ups on <laughs> the theater and our theater industry interviews and the digital talks. So now it's time for the last segment of each and every show, what we're watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching? I have one episode to go of This Is Us, which I have been watching on Comcast Video On Demand, which means I have not been able to fast-forward commercials. Oh, dear Lord. It has been the <laughs> most painful. It, it's, it's on Hulu. <laughs> I don't have Hulu. Oh, no. uh, so, uh, yeah. So, the, it's it, you know, it, it, I do this like once a year, and it's watching a show this way. Um, and it's a reminder of why that technology isn't taking off. Um, so the commercial load is lower, but in every single episode, I've seen, like, the same two commercials for uh, some sort of soft-spreadable cheese. Um, anyway, um, I see, and I can't even, I've seen it so many times that I mock it, and I cannot even remember the brand, so it's not working. But anyway, um, and there's so many episodes. It's been so long since I've watched a broadcast show. Well, they made, what, 18 18. this year? 18! It's amazing how 18 episodes is considered to be so many in this day. I I think we've been watching it for two months. Uh, maybe three. Um, so anyway. It's a good show, though. It's a good show. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move on to something else, but I have been watching a lot of This Is Us. What about you, Alex? So... It's been a while since I've done one of these segments, and as happens, things build up. Like, I could talk about the beautiful, gorgeous final season of The Leftovers, or the brilliant third season of Better Call Saul, but I'm going to wait a little bit until Amanda catches up there. And instead, I'm going to talk about, as I do when I go back home to the New York City area, the theater. And in during this time, I saw a lot of really great theater. Like, I saw Glenn Close's wonderful performance in Sunset Boulevard. Laurie Metcalf was a at times a force to be reckoned with on the stage of A Doll's House Part 2. And Manhattan Theatre Club's uh, The Little Foxes was excellent as well. But I really want to focus on one show in particular. It's the show I walked out of thinking this was special. And that's Dear Evan Hansen. Um, it's a musical with a score by University of Michigan alums Ben Pasek and Justin Paul. It won the Tony for Best Musical this year. It's about a kid named Evan Hansen who gets himself into a certain circumstance through a series of lies and the impact that it has on the lives of the people around him. And man, does that show pack an emotional punch. It's even hard for me to put into words kind of just how I felt walking out of it, you know? The, The theme it really touches on is like what it's like to be an outsider and what it's like, you know, to feel like you're just kind of as one of the big songs in the show puts it, on the outside, always looking in. And, you know, it's just like there are certain moments where I my jaw just dropped from what they were pulling off. It's a very emotional show, and there's, quite frankly, still a song from the second act that probably won Rachel Bay Jones, her Tony, for playing uh, Evan's mom, that I still can't listen to without shedding a tear or two. And uh, I can't, of course, go without talking about Ben Platt, who played Evan, and the remarkable work he did on that stage. That was just a special afternoon in the theater, and, you know, I'm putting it in the same league as Hamilton and the Cursed Child. Just to, just, uh, you should see the look on Amanda's face. She's just like, whoa. (laughs) Anyway, 
That is it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link on the top of the page. If you want new episodes as soon as they are released, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store, which you can find at play.google.com music. Please rate and review us on these platforms as well. It helps us get noticed. Amanda, where can our fine listeners find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon.